This is a download of Chicago Audio Works, the podcast of the University of Chicago Press. For more information, go to the website, www.press.uchicago.edu. Hello, and welcome to Chicago Audio Works, the podcast from the University of Chicago Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Brian Ladd about his new book, Autophobia, Love and Hate in the Automotive Age. Brian Ladd is an independent historian who has taught at the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and is a research associate in the history department at the University of Albany, State University of New York. His previous book, The Ghosts of Berlin, Confronting German History in the Urban Landscape, was published by the University of Chicago Press in 1997. Brian Ladd, thanks for taking time to talk to the Chicago Audio Works today. Glad to be here. Let's say I'm an American man in 1910, and I am thinking about purchasing a car, but I haven't really decided yet if I want to do it. What are some of the negative images I might run into about cars and car owners? Well, around 1910, things were changing very rapidly in terms of the image of cars. Around 1905, the car was definitely a rich man's toy. Now, of course, that's an image that may have attracted more people than it repelled. By 1910, you have the Model T is already out there, and that image is changing rapidly. But it was still easy to see the motorist as a snob. Pedestrians and streetcar riders and even riders in horse-drawn carriages were much more a part of the neighborhood and much more able to interact with others as they went along. Someone in a fast car, especially one of the new closed cars, um, a car like that was not only noisy and stinky and dangerous, it sealed a person off. And I think that's been a fateful change in city streets, and it's one that was noticed from the beginning. Along the same lines, there was also a sense that once you put a person behind the wheel, he became a sort of ruthless sociopath, that the power of a car, along with the isolation from the road, seems to unleash male aggression, and perhaps female aggression as well, and generally brings out the worst in people. This was an impression that people took note of in 1910 and thereabouts, and it's, of course, an impression that's never gone away. Today we talk about road rage. It's really a very old idea. Would there have been different images in the city as opposed to the country? I mean, I got a sense from the book that, that although there were definite issues of crowding because of just the, the density of people in city streets, that people in the country weren't too keen on cars either. Right. What I think I just described was more of a city image of the car. Um, in the countryside, again, in the United States, things changed pretty quickly. In the beginning, cars came from the city, and it was rich people coming from the city and disturbing, quiet country roads. Um, now, that changed very quickly because Model T's became something that farmers could afford and came to depend on. And so within a few years, cars were actually more at home in the country than in the city. Now, those are negative messages I would have gotten in the United States. Would it have been any different if I were in continental Europe around the same time? Things changed more slowly in Europe. So there were a lot of the same images at the beginning, and the negative images persisted more. There was more of a class divide, and it lasted a lot longer. And I think more of an urban-rural split, because, as I just said, 
farmers in the U.S. were buying Model Ts already, you know, 1910-1920. It was decades before very many rural people or farmers got cars in Europe, and so the car remained associated with arrogant rich city people coming out for their country drives, running over the chickens, the dogs, the pigs, even the children, and seeming not to be bothered by having done so. Of course, that wasn't true of all motorists, but it was true of some, and that sort of formed the image in the countryside. And the most visible sign of the rural discontent would have been the boys who threw rocks at passing cars. That was a very common phenomenon, again, very briefly in the U.S., but for much longer in Europe. And I think it reflected a general village hostility that was there for a long time. Was it also a case that in Europe, as opposed to the United States, just the streets were just smaller, and that kind of led to issues with cars being on those streets? Yeah, certainly that was true, that the crowding issue was there from the beginning. Although I think that became more of an issue later when there were more cars after World War II, uh, because that meant that European cities became choked and clogged and traffic wouldn't move with fewer cars than happened in the United States, although, of course, the same problem happened in the U.S. Although the flip side of that is that with the narrow streets, it was perhaps less of a problem that cars were racing through the streets. It was still a problem, very much a problem, but there were places where they couldn't do that. Did the lead-up to World War II change European views on the automobile? I know that you talk about the book that... Um, that both uh, Mussolini was a big fan of automobiles and that Hitler, of course, famously built the Autobahns and was developing the Volkswagen. Did it change in Germany and Italy because of those two leaders' views on automobiles? Um, it's hard to say how many people shared their views, um, but I think they reflected a kind of technological optimism and a kind of legitimization of the sense of aggression that I talked about earlier that was associated with cars. And you know, aggression was something that fascists and Nazis celebrated in certain contexts. And so it was very convenient for them to promote cars. And it made other people feel good about cars as well. Of course, this was an era in which in those countries, very few people owned cars. It was something for the future for a special occasion, not for everyday life. Um, what's interesting, I think, is that after the war, the associations with the Nazis and the fascists pretty much disappeared from everybody's minds. Um, as people did actually begin to acquire cars in large numbers, they didn't think about the fascists, and very few people reminded them of that. And so it, there, there was an interesting sort of separation in people's minds. Let's go to the post-war era, um, particularly in America. In the 1950s, it's almost impossible to imagine this country without thinking about automobiles. It was, for some people, the golden age of American cars. Did the nature of the criticism about American car culture change during this time from what it would have been, say, at the turn of the century? Well, in one sense, it changed fundamentally because, as you suggest, this was an era in the U.S. in which normal people drove cars. And so it was impossible to see the car as a rich person's toy anymore. It was the opposite in that the car symbolized mass culture, consumer society, the individualistic society. And so car critics were people who were uncomfortable with this middle-brow American culture, which meant that it was very easy 
and still remains easy to dismiss car critics as snobs, as, as opposed to half a century earlier in which motorists were seen as snobs. But in particular, um, some car critics began to worry about what the mass ownership of cars was doing to cities, which is what a lot of my book is about. Um, this was the decade, 1950s, in which we saw both the beginnings of mass suburbanization and the wholesale ripping open of cities to build freeways. So people began to recognize that when most people had cars, cars were incompatible with the old cities, and one or the other was going to have to give, and certain notions or ideals of city life that revolved around neighborhoods and face-to-face contact were imperiled by cars. And that was what motivated many of the critics of the 1950s, and of course, ever since. Some of the critics back then are probably best known to be Lewis and Mumford and Jane Jacobs. Did Jacobs really spend a lot of time talking about cars, or was her issue more around the neighborhoods and how urban development was changing, how cities were growing? That's right. Mumford was much more of a car hater, although ironically he started out in the 1920s um, as someone who thought cars would be the salvation of the cities, but then he changed his mind rather quickly. As opposed to Jane Jacobs, who's a generation later, um, who starts writing about cities in the 1950s and is concerned about neighborhoods in ways that I was just describing them. She sees cars not as a cause, but more as a symptom of this decline of the neighborhood. But as a very potent symptom, she thinks to the extent that people organize their lives around cars, they're giving up on their neighborhoods. We'll be back with the second half of this interview with Brian Ladd in just a moment. Autophobia, Love and Hate in the Automotive Age by Brian Ladd is published by the University of Chicago Press and is available at bookstores everywhere. News and information about the latest Chicago books can be found at www.press.uchicago.edu. The Press website has excerpts and other online features, and of course, a secure shopping cart for your orders. The Press blogs about its books at pressblog.uchicago.edu. We're back talking to Brian Ladd about his book, Autophobia, Love and Hate in the Automotive Age, um, when we were talking about Jane Jacobs, Lewis Mumford, and the uh, resistance in 1950s to the automobile. Most of the highways around the United States were started in the 1950s. When were activists finally able to start to halt highway advancement in the United States, what did it take? Well, if I could sum up what it took in a formula, then a lot of highway active, anti-highway activists would would be eager to read my book, and I hope they don't. <laughs> I'm afraid I don't have the secret here. Um, there were a few freeway revolts already in the 1950s. Um, most of them were unsuccessful, for example, opposition to the Cross Bronx Expressway in New York. But the 1950s did see the most successful freeway revolt ever, which was in San Francisco, where opponents stopped all freeway construction in the city in 1959. And as it turned out, they stopped it for good, although that wasn't apparent for many years afterward. It was the 1960s and 70s that were the main years of the freeway revolts in many cities and in many countries. Um, These often became huge fights, and most, again, were unsuccessful. But here and there, they were successful where the right coalition of people got the right political support. And particularly by the 1970s, when money became short, it became easier for the opponents to win. So what you see all over the world are cities with freeway stumps where a road ends abruptly 
because opponents managed to stop that particular section through that particular neighborhood or park. So there were successful freeway revolts in many, many different cities, but San Francisco is very much an exception in putting a stop to a freeway system. That was very rare. How is this uh, tied into the whole idea of induced traffic? I mean, I know that one of the longtime rationales for building highways is that you know the current highways are all clogged and we need more roads in order to declog traffic. Is that true? Well, let's start out by defining induced traffic, which is an idea that most non-experts aren't familiar with, and indeed I wasn't until I started working on this topic. Um, it's the if you build it, they will come theory of highway construction. The idea that new roads attract new and additional traffic so that when a new road is opened, people change their commuting routes, shift to the new road. They shift their driving times back to rush hour because now they can get around then. They give up their carpools. They give up on mass transit. And on top of all of that, the new roads open up new and more remote land for development encouraging longer drives to work or shopping or home. So the result is indeed that the new roads often fill up very quickly. Now, as you were suggesting, they're sold as congestion relief, and they're justified in terms of their cost-benefit analyses as congestion relief. But often that relief is a very brief fix. So what happens then? More roads are needed. People have more and more reason and more and more need to drive as the cities sprawl out and the new roads are there. So road construction and driving and sprawl become a self-perpetuating cycle. That's not to say that new roads never help or never help in the long run, but it is to say that the usual calculation doesn't really apply. Ordinary people see clogged roads and they think the solution is more lanes or more roads, and they're encouraged to believe that by powerful interests in government and in industry that are committed to road building. And so we have these fights over the question of whether new roads really work or not. Again, it's a fight that generally hasn't reached a broader public. Most people aren't aware of this idea of induced traffic, but most transportation scholars now acknowledge that it is real and measurable, and it does mean that new roads don't do what you would think they would. So let's talk about a possible solution that's out there, congestion pricing. First of all, for people who don't know what congestion pricing is, could you explain it? Well, I would distinguish between two kinds of congestion pricing. One comes when a line is drawn around a crowded city center, and anyone who drives in, at least during certain hours, has to pay a fee. This is something Singapore has had since 1970s, and it's been tried more recently in Norwegian cities, in London, in Stockholm, and Milan, and it's generally been a success. Um, in the U.S., there aren't all that many city centers that have a strong enough draw and a good enough transit system to make this idea work. The obvious one is Manhattan. The proposal for congestion pricing was recently defeated there, but I do think it will be back. Manhattan being a place where most people don't drive, people don't need to drive because of the transit system and because they can walk places, and yet it's a place that's choked by cars, where automobiles dominate most of the open space of the island of Manhattan. 
The other kind of congestion pricing is variable highway tolling, where tolls vary by the time of day and the level of traffic, and they can be changed quickly to maintain a certain level of traffic flow. This has been tried in California. And again, it's been quite popular, although not universally so. Some people talk about Lexus lanes, implying that it's a favor to rich people. I think there will probably be more of this kind of uh, tolling as well, because it offers a way to pay for new highways at a time when there isn't much money out there to build them. Now, this approach doesn't have much to do with curtailing driving, except that it does make the point that drivers don't currently pay their own way, contrary to their widespread belief that they do. And it introduces a policy of making drivers actually bear the cost of their driving, because when a road is more congested, everybody's losing time and therefore losing money, and therefore it does cost more for each new car to enter the road, and therefore there's a legitimate reason to say you should pay more. Let's talk about another idea out of the book, traffic calming. Um, What is it? For most Americans, it's a pretty foreign idea. Um, But basically, it means slowing down cars, which is striking only in the sense that it's the opposite of what most traffic engineering does. Now, most Americans will probably immediately think of speed bumps, which are one of the crudest and poorest forms of traffic calming. Traffic calming works better with a combination of designs, including speed limits, but also narrow streets, varied pavements, and even removing the curb line between the cars and everything else. So cars have to share their space with pedestrians, and the cars have to yield the right-of-way in that particular neighborhood. These designs are in widespread use in the Netherlands, in Germany, and some other countries. And what they do is they reverse the prevailing trend of the last century, which has been to encourage cars to go ever faster and to decide that everyone and everything else should just stay out of their way. The idea here is that drivers should interact with other people, that they should, in other words, behave like human beings and not like machines. It isn't really such an outlandish idea, but it's more or less the opposite of the way our transportation system has been functioning up until now. So finally, uh, when we think about the things going on in the news today, um, climate change, uh, a lot of it caused by uh, carbon emissions and a lot of that caused by personal automobiles. Gas prices are very high. Um, with the current financial crisis, uh, a lot of government funds are going to be dried up, so there might not be a lot of money to spend on roads. Where do you see the age of automobile dominance as personal transportation in the 21st century? Do you think it's coming to an end? Well, I could do a cop out here and say I'm a historian I only know what already happened but uh, and I don't really know of course about the future I can say that some car haters have for a very long time been proclaiming that oil shortages or pollution or global warming or the general awfulness of suburbia is going to cause everybody to give up their cars and walk or take a train or stay home and Amid these recent crises that you just mentioned, we hear these predictions again. But because we've heard them so much in the past, I tend to be a bit skeptical. I think these critics ignore the powerful reasons that keep people attached to their cars, good reasons and bad reasons. I do think that the end of cheap oil and the global warming issue will cause our transportation system to change, 
but it won't necessarily end the automotive era. Instead, people will look for more efficient cars, different fuels. People will adjust their budgets to pay more for their cars. I think there will be bigger changes, but they will come slowly, and I don't know quite when they will come. And I think they will come as people ask themselves whether they really want to spend ever more time in their cars and drive to ever more distant suburbs. Or would they rather perhaps start to give up some of the speed and some of the space in favor of something else? So I think people will ask themselves, some people already do ask themselves, if the cities that predate the automotive age still have something to offer to us in the 21st century. And I would hope that we'll see, as a result, some kind of re-evaluation of the way cars do or don't fit into city life. But it won't be a quick transition. Brian Ladd, the author of Autophobia, Love and Hate in the Automotive Age. Thanks for taking time to talk to the Chicago Audio Works today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this download from the University of Chicago Press. Additional episodes can be found on iTunes or any podcast aggregator. Your comments and questions are always welcome. The email address for the show is publicity at press.uchicago.edu. Copyright 2008, the University of Chicago, all rights reserved.